paramedics, and EMTs. Uh, with that wrapped up, I'm ready to get into the show. I want to do our section on history, the year 1201, because this is episode 1201. I've had mixed feedback on this segment. I'm planning on running this through next week. At that time, I'm going to run a poll, and uh, if it's an even split, I'll probably quit it. If it's uh, you know somewhat of a majority that likes it, I'll continue it, and if it's a heavy majority that doesn't like it, obviously I'll stop it. I'm not sure how this is taken by the mainstream audience. One thing I am going to start doing as of today, though, is to read less of what happened in the year, just maybe one or two things that I find interesting myself, and if uh, if there aren't any, maybe I'll say t today we don't really have a lot of interesting things to talk about. I think there's always something. Um, keeping in mind that, uh, that you know, at this time, England and France were at war, and there was still a lot of commerce between England and France because of certain issues and certain parts of France that were being controlled by England. Uh, Richard the Lionheart has only died a couple years ago, and uh, now we're in 1201 where John, his brother, uh, is now in charge of England. So this is one of the things that happened in 1201. John of England put an embargo on wheat exported to Flanders in an attempt to force allegiance between the states. So Flanders uh, it was, a, uh, was a, a state that at the time, as far as I know, was English-speaking, and it's today, I guess, what you would call northern, northern Belgium. Uh, is is this area? So he wanted allegiance from them. So he uh, he put an embargo on wheat exported to them to try to uh, bring them in line. He also put a levy of a fifteenth uh, on the value of cargo exported to France. So he put a tariff on anything going to France and disallowed the export of wool to France without special license. The levies are enforced in each port by at least six men, including one churchman and one knight. So you had a knight and a churchman enforcing taxation on exports into France and holding special license for things. John then affirms this year that his judgments, or the judgments made by the court of Westmire, are as valid as those made before the king himself or his chief justice. In other words, he delegated power to a court and said, you have to listen to them too like they're me. So he was using leverage. Now, again, the reason I do this is to put things in perspective for people that a lot of the things we think of as unique to our time are not quite so unique to our time. This sounds a lot like how politicians behave today, does it not? That was the year 1201. For more on the year 1201, visit our show notes. There will be a link to the Wikipedia article on it. Uh, before I bring our special guest on, I want to talk about what happened on the show yesterday. Well, a little context and a little bit of information. This, of course, is my interview with Sally Fallon of the Weston A. Price Foundation. Um, there's been a lot of chatter in the blog about this, and I want to clear a few things up. First of all, I'd like everybody to know that it was my contention that there's a lot of common ground between Paleolithic-style eating and much of the Paleo community, which is very diverse and very fragmented and has lots of people that are just regular Joes in it and lots of authorities and lots of authors, and it's not one thing, and the work of Dr. Weston A. Price. And I had actually communicated that it was my desire to allow, because there is a lot of bad blood, Uh, between Sally Fallon and apparently some people in the paleo movement, specifically Lauren Cordain, that goes back a very long way, and that maybe this would be a great opportunity to find that common ground and bury the hatchet. So that had already been communicated before this interview. I think that would maybe put some things in perspective. I'd also like to point out, for those of you that think I was 
not polite or whatever while I was being talked over on my own show that this is my 1,201st episode. Yesterday was 1,200, 1,200 episodes. I've had guests on from all walks of life. I've had guests on that completely disagree with me on things, that I completely disagree with on things, people that were very much in agreement, disagree on a few things. There has never been an interview with that tone ever on the show in 1,200 episodes, yet there are, and I'm not being mean here, because I'm about to say some really nice things about Sally. I want you to understand that. But I'm also going to clear up some misconceptions that may be causing all of these problems. There are interviews with Sally just like this one in many other places where she was the same way. So all I'm saying is the thing that was consistent was, was me, and the thing that was consistent was her, and that type of thing is consistent when she does an interview with anybody that brings the subject up. I didn't know that. I didn't do, I guess I didn't do enough research, and I'm going to talk about research I've done since and some things I've learned here in just a second. Um, and I, I know that some of you don't care about politics, but this is not about politics. If you are interested in nutrition from the, from the concept of Weston Price and from the concept of paleo, I'm going to give you some very important information here in a minute, so you may want to hang with me and listen to this. But I'm just trying to say I wasn't trying to be mean. I wasn't trying to be rude. What I was hoping to be was heard so that we could discover and learn together about the commonalities and not focuses on, focus on the differences. She was not interested in that. I think that she's been through this enough times that she assumed I was like Lauren Cordain or someone else or whoever else she's had her problems with. I was not trying to be that way, but it was impossible to convey that. When the interview was over, I referenced for her two articles on Rob Wolf's site one on how to render lard, and another one where he was backing a Kickstarter called In Defense of Fat, and said, I think you need to understand that some of the things on, on, you know, with that particular author are being, you know, kind of moderated and they're learning more and they're evolving. She had no interest in it. She said, well, he needs to change his site. Like, it's his site. He can do what he wants with it. Um, my contention is that Rob Wolf's methodology is here's your base, start here, do this for 30 to 60 days, clean your system out. And then if there's things that you think you want to add back into your diet, do it one or two at a time slowly, see how you do, and find what works for you. Which means if you want to eat fatty meat, go ahead. And I also pointed out that, you know, Rob cooks with bacon grease. Um, again, not interested. I, I don't understand the reluctance, uh, but maybe I do now. So until yesterday, like I think most people, I want to be clear, I don't think that Sally Fallon uh, or uh, her co-founder, Mary Enig, mean to mislead anybody about anything. But I think people are confused. The Weston A. Price Foundation. Until yesterday afternoon, I had always assumed that the Weston A. Price Foundation was directly connected to Weston A. Price by legacy, continued work, uh, that somehow they were officially the foundation of Weston Price. They are not. They are a, I'm saying this, I mean, and people get mad and stuff. You gotta listen to the totality of what I'm saying here. But it's important that this be understood, I think. Because I think it's where the confusion comes from, from us in the paleo world. We're confused. There's a reason. Let me finish, right? So, <laughs> the the Sally and and Mary did a great thing with Nourishing Traditions, her book. I think you should buy it if you're interested in learning more about this type of eating. 
And I think you should support her as an author. When they wrote that book, they, they realized they did a lot of research and one way or another decided that it would be great if there was a place where people could share this information. And they decided they were going to create an organization called the Western A. Price Foundation. They're not sanctioned by anything, though. They just did it. They brought in advisors and research, and they do great work. But there's an organization called the Price Pottinger um, Nutrition Foundation, and it is the official organization that has continued the work of Dr. Weston A. Price. Now, they have clearly no problem with what Sally's doing. They've published her articles a few times. And they haven't, they haven't said, you know, you can't use the name or anything like that. But when I have always heard of this organization, I simply assumed that they were directly part of the legacy, not simply a foundation based on the interpretation of the group of people that found it of one man's work. Okay? There's a difference there. There's definitely a difference there. And I think that's important. So here's what I think happens, and this is where all the confusion comes from. A person is paleo. That person reads Dr. Price's original book, finds out about Dr. Price's work, learns about the similarities and the commonalities, and starts to say, hey, this all jives with what I'm doing, and they think Weston Price is cool, right? And they like Weston Price. And then they hear about this thing called the Weston Price Foundation, Because they do what I did, which is not research it and not really pay attention to founded in 1999 by Sally Fallon and Mary Enig, right? They don't pay attention. I just assume this is Dr. Price's thing. It's not Dr. Price's thing. It's Sally Fallon's thing. And she has every right in the world to do it. And I agree with about 95% of what she's saying. I'm not as sold on grains and legumes, as she is, even when they're properly prepared. But I think the preparation methodology recommended does make them less adverse. And my whole point here has been in trying to learn more about Weston Price and his work that there's certain things that I've put out of my diet that I'd like to reintroduce, probably in smaller quantities than they consume them. But by learning about that type of preparation, it makes it easier to reintroduce them. That was the conversation I wanted to have. That had actually been communicated in advance. However, it fell on deaf ears, and it's because of animosity in history. Now, this Price Pottinger Foundation, I'm digging this. I really am. I've sent them an email. I'm going to join them as soon as I hear back. I simply asked them what the difference between individual and professional membership is. If professional membership just costs more to give them more money, I'm going to join as an individual. If there's some sort of sponsorship or something like that, I'll, I'll step up and do the more expensive membership. Uh, I'm going to look to learn a lot more about what these guys do and what they teach. And it was interesting to me when I heard so much about not eating grass-fed meat, uh, you know, that it, that it wasn't like the the recommendation that there had to be all this, this other stuff and prepare with fat and stuff like that. And I'm on the official uh, Dr. Weston Price organization, again, the Price Pottinger Nutrition Foundation, and I'm reading their guidelines. Animal proteins from pastured animals, beef, poultry, lamb, game, organ meats, eggs, wild fish, and seafood. That sounds very much to me, very, very much to me, uh, like the basic foundation of paleo. So I figured why not Google, well, not Google, but search the Pottinger, Pottinger website for the word paleo. And uh, I found a little article called The Personal Side 
of Dr. Price, and I, you know, searched for paleo in there. And this is what I want to read to you. This, again, this is Dr. Price's actual organization that's been handed down through their conservatory and officially connected back to his work with a chain leading all the way back to the original work. The research of Dr. Weston Price represents what is possibly the origin of many of today's newer diet dietary ideas and variations such as those proposed by the Paleo Diet, the Atkins Diet, and others. Our population continues to suffer from more frequently occurring chronic diseases, which get treated with increasing amounts of pharmaceutical drugs. In, if only his, this book, if only this book and Dr. Price's simple, clear research funding were taught in our schools, it would possibly take only 10 years for our national healthcare crisis to be reduced by more than 50%. No drug or medical discovery will ever accomplish this task that he, and the, that heeding Dr. Weston Price's research and changing the way we eat can accomplish. Um, I think that's cool, and I, I think it's acknowledging the link, and that's I think has been for people in the paleo world the only point that they're trying to make. Not that what Sally does and what they do is the same, and both sides believe what they're doing is best. That's why they're doing it, and they both can make their case, and we can judge the results for ourselves. One more thing before I wrap this up. On the Price Pottinger website, when I Google Paleo, they're offering to sell you a cookbook called Primal Cuisine, Cooking for the Paleo Diet. I'm not being a jerk, guys. I'm telling you the facts. Again, I love what Sally's doing. I wish whatever the war is with others, she would let it go. And I wish she would see that sometimes when other people bring up the association, they're not trying to refight a battle that they don't even know about because I wasn't really aware how deep this went. I do think, though, that it's an important distinction. If you're going to decide that you want to follow the work of Dr. Price and you're making a decision as to where you get your information from, that you're aware of what the organization's basis actually is. The Weston A. Price Foundation is a great organization made up of wonderful people that have followed and done the best that they can to interpret, extrapolate, and build on the work of Dr. Weston A. Price. But they are really founded by, controlled by, and everything they do based on the interpretations of their founders. They do not have a direct lineage back to Dr. Price, but they are not doing anything deceitful. They are not committing brand privacy. They have simply created an organization based on the man's name in whose work they follow. Clear? The Price Pottinger Nutrition Foundation is an official organization that is sanctioned by the legacy of Dr. Price and has a lineage that goes all the way back to the beginning. The Price Prodinger Nutrition Foundation has no problems that I can see with the work of the Weston A. Price Foundation and thinks the work they're doing is great, just like I do. But they don't have the exact same recommendations. But they do approve, very much so, of Sally Fallon, or they would not publish her articles on their website. But... Did you know? Now you do. And now if you want to know more about Dr. Price, you'll be fully informed when you get your information from either source. That, I think, is important. And this is why, again, I think people in paleo that reference Dr. Price and end up talking about the Weston A. Price Foundation in general are confused and think it is the official organization. It's not. Okay, with that, hopefully that is behind us and we don't have to worry about it anymore.
And I'd like to introduce my uh, special guest now, Mr. Peter Hartman. Hey, Peter, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks, Jack. I'm a longtime listener, so it's really good to be on. So uh, we're here to talk about winter gardening, which since it's like 101 degrees today where I'm at, a lot of people think it's not the time to talk about it, but it really is because we're, we're heading into that time of year quicker than you think. Um, but before we get into that, can you just tell people maybe a little bit about who you are and you know how you got into gardening? I know you do permaculture and things as well. So I mean, how'd you how'd you end up as a survival podcast listener and a, a homesteader on three acres? Um, well, I I started gardening probably five years ago, six years ago, something like that, with just some tomatoes and buckets, and it's kind of just snowballed since then. Um, and I'm kind of a lazy gardener, so I like to do very little work and get lots of benefit. And um, winter gardening kind of fit into that really well. So Cool. So um, when you look at winter gardening, what, what equipment do you recommend for people as far as winter gardening goes? Because it is a little bit different than, you know, gardening. And most people garden pretty much along the lines of, you plant a garden in the spring, hopefully some of it makes it through the summer, there's some stuff left over in the fall, and then they put things to bed, so to speak, until next spring. So what what different equipment might you need for a winter garden? Um, some of the equipment you're going to use um, when you get into the really cold months, um, you can do cold frames. Those are the easy kind of free things you can set up, um, which is basically a box, and it's going to have a slight slope to the south with some kind of glass door or windows or whatever you can scrounge together. Um, I've never paid anything for the cold frames I've built. I've made them out of scrap lumber and pallets, old windows, hay bales, whatever I can come up with, um, and they all work great. Um, hay bales kind of have the advantage of they kind of break down and they are great insulation, so your stuff stays a little bit warmer in those. Um and just real quick, I, I realized I didn't ask you, what, what part of the country are you in for people here to get an understanding of, you know, what winter is for you? I'm in southwest Missouri, pretty close to Springfield. Okay, so you get pretty cold. Yep. I mean, you're not Montana cold, but it gets, that's, yeah, I think a lot of people think of Missouri as a southern state, and it is, but it's also an interior state. Right. So it, so it gets quite cold. Um, definitely plenty of days below freezing. So I, I didn't want to interrupt you there, but I did want to put it in perspective for folks. So, again, you were on uh, hay bales for making cold frames. and um, Yeah, so cold frames are one thing you can do. Um, I've actually got some pictures on my website that people can look at of stuff I've built. Um, I've also done low tunnels, which uh, are basically what you would see at a commercial greenhouse, only a shrunk-down version. Um, mine are usually about four feet wide and as long as you want to make them and then you just throw some greenhouse plastic over the top of them and and you're good to go all winter with those um and then if you really want to get into this you can do the big greenhouse high tunnels um and those have options you can kind of layer things up really well in those where you can put a cold frame inside of a big high tunnel and you get even more cold protection than you would otherwise. 
Absolutely. So, I mean, what type of things are you, you growing? I mean, and well, before we get there, like, so you, you're using these, these methods of, of plant protection. Are you using supplemental heat at all, or is it just simply a protection thing? I am not a fan of supplemental heat. You can grow tomatoes and peppers in December, but it's a lot of energy and a lot of work. But there's a lot of really cold tolerant plants out there that we don't even think about sometimes that are super easy to grow and they can handle i've had broccoli that was in temperatures like negative 10 and it did just fine so there's a lot of stuff out there that will grow great as long as you protect it from frost and really cold winds I've even seen, like, established, I had established broccoli one year. I mean, big enough that it had the heads were three quarters ready to cut. We got hit with an ice storm, and I have pictures of it with ice on it. And, like, the next day it wasn't happy, but it survived, and it came back, and it kept producing. Uh, So, yeah, broccoli's incredibly cold tolerant. I think thinking about winter gardening for people that do live in the south, Missouri's the south, um, you have very cold winters, but you also have very hot summers. And there's a lot of stuff you can't grow in the summer. Yep. Winter's your opportunity for it, right? Yep. So uh, a lot of the lettuces and stuff, um, I don't do any head lettuce. That kind of, it wants to break down a little bit in your coldest months. But any of the leaf lettuces do great. I've never had any lettuce that didn't make it all the way through the winter. Um, any of the brassicas like kale, kohlrabi, broccoli, cabbage, Brussels sprouts, turnip, rutabaga, oriental greens, and radish, all the, they do fantastic in the winter. Um, there's an author, um, Elliot Coleman, I don't know if you've heard of him, um, but he's written a book called The Four Seasons Harvest, I believe, and he's up in Maine, and he does winter gardening, and he has excellent results, too. Definitely. I mean, if you can do it in Maine, you can pretty much do it anywhere. Now, you'd mentioned like peppers and tomatoes taking a lot of uh, a lot of energy, and I agree. Though there are certain things you just, other than that, maybe you should just forget about in the wintertime. It's just not their season. Yeah, just look for the plants that do, that people normally think of planting early in the spring or late in the fall. Those are the things you want to look at, but there's a whole world of plants out there that do great when it's cold out. Um, one of the main things that you're going to have to worry about when you're gardening in the winter is not really the cold because most stuff can handle it. It's the heat. When the sun is bright and shining and you've got a piece of glass over your plants, it can get over 100 degrees in those cold frames real easy, and you're just going to cook all your plants to death. Um, one of the things, so you can either manually vent your cold frames, which is inconvenient for people who are working long jobs and that kind of thing where they make these little mechanical arms that'll they have some kind of wax or oil inside of them that'll automatically vent your cold frames for you and that's what i use and it's unbelievably easy to just let it go and you water your stuff maybe once a month in your coldest months so it's really easy gardening so are you doing most of your stuff, your protective stuff, in ground? It doesn't sound like you're really doing a lot of, like, container greenhouse stuff. I'm not. Um, I hope to get a big greenhouse eventually, but right now everything I do is in the ground. Um, that also, the ground always stays warmer than when you do raised beds and pots and that kind of thing. So I like to do everything I was in the just going to bring that up, especially when you've got a greenhouse collecting solar passive heat all day long. 
and the ground within that warms up, now you've got a heat sink, so to speak, that's going to then radiate back out in the evenings. Exactly. And plus it protects the roots because a lot of plants, yeah, they can handle freezing temperatures, but they can't handle, you know, a very cold freezing of the roots. That's, that's what gets a lot of our plants. Right. And you'll notice that your cold frames are going to go well below freezing. As long as you protect them from the frost, your plants are going to look wilty and they're going to look terrible when it's really cold out. But as soon as it comes back up above freezing, everything is going to perk right back up and it'll be ready to harvest. Now, you mentioned um, doing minimal watering. That's actually important, too, because from my understanding anyway... If you water heavily during freezing temperatures and the plants are overhydrated, there's a lot more potential for ruptured cells. Right. And I've, I've never had an issue with it. Um, I just feel the soil and make sure it's not really dry. Um, but mine, I've never had an issue with water, but I, I don't water that often either. I just make sure the soil is reasonably moist and it lasts all winter pretty much. Well, and I think your plants tell you too. I mean, when you look at a plant that needs some water, you know it needs some water. You, you can, you know, you don't really want it to get that far. But if you're if you're in doubt and you look at your plants and they're just booming and healthy, and you pretty much know they they've got what they need. And the by the being that you're growing in ground, you know, evaporation in the winter time is very very slow. Um, and then if you're in a protected environment, you almost create your little rainstorms. I remember one of my first greenhouses. Uh, I kind of felt like every day it had a rainstorm because I would go down there after the sun came up to open up some windows for venting, and the first thing I do would just shake it, and it would be just all types of condensation in there. So you're creating this microclimate that's almost creating like almost like a rainforest type of uh, you know, like a temperate rainforest climate. Exactly. Um. When uh, you know, we say winter garden. What what is the beginning of winter gardening season as far as you're concerned? I mean, are you know right now? Like I said, it's to, I don't know what it's doing up your way, but it's 101 here today. Yep, it's, uh, I'm kind of upset that it's September and it's 101, uh, and it's going to be like 101 for the next week. But you know, we are about to see temperatures moderate, and you know, I guess fall gardening really comes before winter. So when when do you kind of see the season beginning that you would call officially winter gardening? Well, my gardening season is kind of just all season. I never really stop. So sure. some of the stuff you're going to start planting, if if you want big heads of broccoli and cabbage, sometimes you start as soon as June for your winter crops, depending on where you are in the country. Um, July, August, I really start getting going with all my winter stuff. Um, leaf, vegetables, Swiss chard, and lettuces, those can all go in later, and I'm going to start putting that stuff in now. Um, everybody should be documenting this stuff if you're going to do it, because next year you can tweak it and it's going to come out perfect, because you're not necessarily extending your growing season. When days are less than 10 hours, you're going to see almost no growth, but your plants are going to be like in a refrigerator, and they never go bad. So you're just maintaining that amount of crop that can get you through those really short days. As soon yeah. as you get back to February, your plants are going to take off and you're going to have more lettuce than you know what to do with. I think that's important because what I've seen people do is plant lettuce really late in the year. And it comes up and it starts to grow and then it gets like, you know, baby lettuce size, which if that's all you want, fine. But then it just like sits there. Yep. 
It just sits there and it doesn't grow. And it doesn't grow and it doesn't grow. And now you can get lettuce to grow in shorter day lengths, but you've got to do something with it. You know, I, I've got a video where I just put a, an old fish tank over top of uh, a, you know, a little patch of lettuce. And five feet away, there's another patch of lettuce. And this is going through, you know, right about the 1st of January that I started this. And like 15 days later, the stuff with the greenhouse over is just beautiful. Yep. And the other stuff, completely surviving. No problem. No growth. Yep. Just no growth at all. Um, so a lot of times it's also you also have to get that plant well established before that cold comes. Not just because the growth slows down, but... Some of these plants will survive the cold if they're established, but if they're really small, they won't. Right. And there are some plants, like spinach, it does great no matter what. It can be really tiny when you put it in the ground, which I like to succession crop all my winter stuff. So as soon as I open up a space, I'll put some spinach in there. It's going to germinate first, and I may not have it all winter, but as soon as it comes up in February on a warm day then I'm going to have tons of spinach two weeks, three weeks later. Yeah, it, it's, it's it, you know, we're talking about winter gardening, but it's just typically you start to kind of really get more holistic as you go. And what you're trying to do, uh, and you mentioned, uh, you know, four-season gardening is basically, instead of extending the season, connect the seasons. And so you have certain fall crops that you harvest, that store well with little effort, like squashes and root crops and things like that, that, you know, if you can get into February, then you come back to greens, you get into March, you start to come into some more substantial stuff, and by, you know, April and May, you're back into, you know, spring, summer gardens. Right. So it's this, like, it's like this bridge. Uh, And I like one of the things you said was really interesting how, like, some of the stuff is basically the plant gets to a certain size, and if you've ever grown broccoli, and I'm sure you have, you grow broccoli in the spring, that head gets to a certain size, and if you don't cut it, it goes to seed. Yep. And in the winter, it'll get up to that certain size, and you can let that thing sit for two or three weeks before you cut it. Right. I mean, you can. I've let broccoli sit all winter, and it'll just stay there ready for whenever I want it. If you let it get into the February for us, and the farther north you go, it's going to be later, but... About mid-February is when everything starts growing again for us. So you better cut it then, or it will. And then you get the side shoots. But if you don't cut it then, you've got yellow flowers, and it's it. It looks cool with all the insects on it, but it, it doesn't taste as good. Anymore. Yeah, it doesn't taste good. But that's another benefit of doing stuff during the winter. You're going to have a lot of plants that, if you don't eat them over the winter, you're going to have a huge seed supply next year. So if you're growing heirloom seeds i i don't buy a lot of my seeds anymore because i just let a couple plants go to seed over the winter and i have more seed than i know what to do with yeah two or three lettuce plants that go to seed i mean seriously at that point you you're you give it away to anybody that wanted some because you can't possibly use it all yeah i, I don't even plant kale anymore it just comes up all over the place yeah, I, one year I think I let three black seeded Simpson lettuces go, and then I just took them and banged them into a, a five gallon bucket, and I got like I think it was like a quart sized Glad bag. Yep. You know, like half full of seed, and that's that's thousands and thousands of seed, and it's not that seed's really that expensive, and I buy some every year to support the the companies that are doing the work um, to to keep this stuff around, 
But it's 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 an expense you don't have to have, and that's and it's also a self sufficiency thing. Right. And then it's nice to be able to have that seed and trade with other people that have other things that you don't. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and you're talking about how like these plants get to a certain size and then they go dormant in the winter, so they just sit there and it's like storage, but it's alive. Right. And what it makes me think of is like a lot of people that keep rabbits. They're like, how do you, you know, when you ask them, well, how do you keep, you know, meat from spoiling? They're like, keep it alive. So the nice thing with a rabbit is if you don't want to kill it today, you can leave it sit around for two or three weeks. It doesn't eat that much. And gee, it'll be a quarter pound heavier when you slaughter it. it it's kind of like doing the, and I've really never thought of it this way. That's why this is interesting to me. But winter gardening, when you time it right, is very much the same philosophy. I'm going to grow that plant and store it. I mean, I've done this for years with like carrots. I'll put carrots in the ground. Um, they'll be big enough to eat, you know, by the end of November, and then it gets cold, and you just you just push the heads, the the uh, the tops down, and just put a huge thing of mulch over it, and you've got all the way till about the end of February here anyway. Before, if you don't pull them, they start to you know get weird and wonky on you. Yep. Um, and you're you're just basically extending that to other other things because I do that with root crops all the time. But yeah, we could do that with with just about anything that handles the cold. Yeah. Um, I, carrots are another thing that I love to let go to seed because you get so much seed from one carrot if you just leave it in the ground. Um, my, but the greens are my favorite thing to grow in the winter. It's not a lot of calories, and you're not going to survive on a green salad, but to be able to go out when it's 15 degrees outside and there's snow and ice on the ground and open up <laughs> your cold frame and there's this green little jungle in there that you can eat is awesome. You know, it's weird. I think most people think of salads as a, a summer food. And you know, as, as paleo as I am and much meat as I eat, generally I eat very little vegetables in the summer. I don't know why. I mean, it is cool and refreshing and all. It's the winter where I crave that stuff. Yep. And it might be the climate I live in. If I lived in Pennsylvania, I might not feel that way. And I, I don't remember that I did. Um, I wasn't eating this way either at the time. But I just it just seems like... The things that will grow in certain seasons are what you crave if you if you don't know, stay in the same place and, and start to really live off of what you're producing. So to get lettuce right now, we've got to buy it. We just, I mean, it's 101 degrees. Um, there's no way you're growing it right now. Nope, but we I don't can't want grow it either. You know, I don't want it, and it's weird to me because salads are cool. Uh, they're refreshing. They, you know, they you, when you if you eat a big heavy meat meal in the heat, you usually it. But I guess maybe it's just the way I've shifted my diet that that's just how it works out. Yeah, we don't, Which is almost like nature knows what it's doing. Yeah, we don't eat hardly any salads this time of year. But in the winter, we have salads every day. Hmm. I'd say we do the same thing. Um, how much more work would you say a winter garden is? I, I actually think it's less work. It's way less work. I don't water. You don't have to weed. There's almost no bug or pest problems so it's really lazy people gardening you just go out there and harvest every once in a while you might have to water rarely you know but for the most part you just go out there and harvest what you want um what are some of the problems then i mean you know every every salesman's good at pointing out the the good 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 of what they're selling what, what about the uh what about the downsides so some of my problems that I've had, a lot of times when you're planting stuff for the spring and the summer, you're starting seeds inside or outside, 
and all the bugs are kind of dormant, small, not doing much. But when you're starting stuff in August and September, then all the bugs are hungry and doing their thing, and they love little seedlings. So that's been my biggest problem is getting little seedlings started without getting eaten. Um, I've put meshes over my cold frames and that kind of thing, and that's really solved the problem. But you've got to be careful with cabbage moth and all that kind of thing. Yeah, they're my biggest late season problem. They, they, and I don't know, maybe they don't hang hang out as long up up your way as they do down here, but they're a problem right into December. Yep. Um, I've had quite a few years where, like, my first real frost has been a day before or after Thanksgiving ish, and and then it generally doesn't freeze every night after that. You know, you get that first one, it kills all your tomatoes and peppers. And you might go another week before you get another one, and maybe another week before you get another one. You don't get into consistent freezing until, you know, after Christmas down here. So those those moths can survive a few of those light frosts like that. Uh, it takes a good killing frost down to, you know, like, 29 degrees to get rid of them. And it seems like if you get two weeks of good weather, they're back. Um, again, I'm a lot further south than you, but we do have, you know, I've, I've had, all of a sudden you go out in January and you've got broccoli in the ground and, Little white and yellow fl- uh, butterflies are everywhere. Yep. Which we, yeah, we don't have cabbage moth like that. We get them into maybe November, and usually at that time they've slowed down enough that they don't do any real damage. But for the most part, around us and north, there's very little pest problems that you have to worry about. You're going to have roly polies or pill bags, depending on where you're from, going nuts down in your soil, but they like dead stuff. So I'm glad you brought that up. I, I I get emails and stuff all the time from people. The pill bugs ate my whatever, and they eat almost nothing until it's either dead or dying. Um, I've said people say, well, they eat my strawberries. Well, what they've probably done is your strawberry laid on the ground. You didn't pick it. It got so much earth contact that it began to rot, and they started eating the rotten part. Um, I've got, because people are afraid of mulches because of how much how many of those there are. I've got... Billions of them. They don't eat anything. Nope. They only like dead stuff. And if your plant's still standing, it doesn't mean it's not dying. And they will go up there and eat that if you've got standing dead plants. But they only like dead stuff. Well, it's their job. They're a decomposer. Right. That's, that's their function. Yeah. Um, so you've got, what, three acres? Uh, we just got three acres. We built an ICF house this past year. Um, so I'm kind of starting fresh on my gardening over here. Real quick for me. So you just got it. So how long have you guys been on your property now? Uh, we moved in about three weeks ago. So I'm, uh, I'm a little behind on, on oh, all wow. my gardening. Yeah. But uh, it's it's going to be good, and I've got a lot of projects lined up, which I'll be documenting on my website probably for the most part. Which we go ahead and give you a plug now. We'll make sure we mention it again at the end, but it's onesojourner.org, correct? Right. Very cool. So this is interesting to, to get into this discussion, too, because I think a lot of people that, like, how big a place did you have before where you were doing things? We lived right in the middle of town uh, in a little tiny lot, uh, maybe 3,000 square feet lot. So we've, we've upped our space by a lot. Um, we also had a lot of trees to our south, which they lost their leaves, but... 
people think that when a tree loses their leaves, you're going to get a bunch more light, and you might get 50% more light, but you're still going to lose a lot of sunshine when you've got big trees to your south. So when you're locating these winter garden spots, put them close to your house because you don't want to go tracing through the snow all the time, and make sure you have a good south view of the sky. Definitely. What I kind of wanted to talk about, though, because I think a lot of people are in the same boat or soon will be, it is a bit daunting when you move to a new property. And Yeah, you might upgrade your space. I just did this. I, I also have a three-acre property, and I moved yeah. in January here. Now, I had a five-acre property before, but I had probably close to an acre-ish that was really able to be utilized. So I've tripled my space, but I had so many things done there. And I was so established. And then you get to something new, and it's like a blank slate. And it, at, at some point, you're almost like, it was easier before. And it isn't really that it was easier. You just, you know, you've gone on for a while. And the reason I bring that up, I think it's important for people that are new to gardening to hear that. Because guys like you and me that have been doing this a while, you think, oh, well, that person just has a, you know, magic green thumb or something. And when we have to start a new property, it's almost like starting completely over. Because now, even if you're in the same climate, you have to learn th things that are unique to your property. You have to rethink some things, and you're you're down to the the base metal, so to speak, right? Right. With well, I try to keep a spreadsheet with all my planting times and moving out here. Even though we're only 20 minutes from where we used to live. A lot of stuff is going to change just because of the amount of daylight we're going to have out here. And we're on a south slope a little bit where the winter stuff is going to go. So it changes a lot. Yeah, it changes. It also would also changes, though, on, on could be negative anyway, is you don't since you're not in the suburbs, you don't have all those little things around you that block wind. Right. So now you've got more wind to contend with, which has its detriments in both winter and summer. Right. We would never freeze when when it was down to 30 degrees. We would never get below freezing in our backyard. But now that we're out here, we frost when it's not even not even supposed to go below 32. So it's mm. definitely a different environment. But um, that uh, you can work on that with stones and cold frames and all that, and improve your microclimates. Yeah, our place in Arlington, I remember when I put the garden in, I put it kind of up on this, this high point just outside the house, and there was this low spot that seemed really ideal because when it would rain, water would flow down there, and if you put raised beds in, they wouldn't get too wet, and it was like this natural catchment. And, and Dorothy wanted to know why, you know, very intelligent question, why don't you put the garden down there? And I'm like, because I want to grow stuff in the winter here. And that first fall, I was able to show her, we had times where the temperature was like 35 degrees officially overnight, and that low spot was frosted. Yep. Nothing else in the neighborhood was frosted, but that low spot was where all the cold sunk in, and it was sunk in, and it was, because there was privacy fence, the fence acted like an air dam, and between the low spot and that, that holding back the, the cold air, that spot would go to frost three to four degrees above official freezing temperatures. And that's one of those things people have to kind of look at, and sometimes that's a good thing. You know, that's not a bad thing in the summer, but it is a bad thing in the winter. Right. That's one thing I want to experiment with with this property is using earthworks and ponds to protect from freezing. I know that uh, Sepp Holzer has done a lot of that work, but 
not speaking English, it's kind of hard to follow him sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, there's there's a lot of potential there. But Seth does some things that are because he gets snow. And if you have even close to the temperatures he's dealing with without snow, it's a lot harder. Um, snow is, you know, ice. And ice is 32 degrees. And, and snow also has a lot of air in it. Yep. So when you have nice, airy, deep snow that hasn't compacted sitting on top of a plant, it basically, unless you get super, super cold, it pretty much, you can be 20 degrees outside and it's 32 degrees inside that snow. Snow is a and, great insulator. Yeah, so it's, so it's it's an awesome insulator, but then if you, see, that's why I think people don't understand that when they look at southern gardeners like you and I, they think it's a lot easier. We have this hugely harsh summer. And then we have these very cold winters, and snow's not a normal thing. We get it, but it goes away pretty fast. So it doesn't ever leave that insulating blanket, and it's not there in spring to be this beautiful drip irrigation system either. Yep. So we, we have a lot of tough things to contend with, which that's where the cold frames and the low tunnels come in, and then they kind of act like that snow blanket. Which Absolutely. also makes it easier to harvest your greens. It's a lot harder to dig into the snow and get your stuff out, but... <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Because like, well, I, if I was living in Pennsylvania now, I'd garden right into the winter. But growing up as a kid, you know, with my grandparents, and we produced a ton out of the garden. I think we had about a quarter acre we kept cultivated, but... We did what most people did back then, you know. So we'd get up into, like, September. It was dove season. You started to harvest game. Uh, you take everything you can get. You get that big hit at the end of the year where everything's really producing heavy. Um, everything gets canned, jarred, chow-chowed, pressure canned, water, you know, whatever it needs. Uh, garlic and onions and potatoes go in the, in the basement. And by mid-September, you're done. And, um, and, you know, we'd pick up, you know, do start start plants in, like, you know, February. We'd start doing our, our stars. Um, and I think that there's, uh, there's a lot of times people feel like that's the way it has to be. And part of that probably was we didn't <laughs> dig through the snow. Yep, it is. That's why it's so important to keep all this stuff close. We've got our garden right off the south side of our house now. So when there is snow on the ground, you only have... 10 or 12 feet to walk to get your vegetables versus 100 yards, which is where a lot of people put their gardens. And then by August, they're tired of walking out there, and it's hot, and stuff gets overgrown, and then you're just done with it, and you don't want to garden anymore, at least for that year. When stuff is close, then you maintain it better, and it's not a not a huge project when you want to go out there and plant some stuff for the winter. So are there any particular resources you've relied on to, you know, like books or people's work you followed or anything like that? Yeah, I would say Elliot Coleman is my favorite author, um, and his book um, is a really good one, and I recommend anybody that's interested in this look up his book, um, and it is called The Four Season Harvest, um, and that's probably the best one, and he talks a lot about winter gardening, but they also take a trip to southern France, and people over there in Europe, are, a lot of them grow stuff during the winter. So it's a kind of an American thing to just shut everything up for the winter and not grow anything, which southern France is about the same latitude as 
Elliot Coleman is up in Maine. So anybody south of that should definitely be growing stuff because you have the day length to do it even in the winter. It's because we're spoiled here, honestly, with the amount of land we have that we can be that way. I mean, what we look at as a small suburban lot is is a huge garden to a lot of Europeans. Yep. So they have to maximize what they can get out of the little plots of land that they have. Um, and I think there's a lot more tradition of growing your own food in, in Europe. There is. There's definitely a lot more tradition, which I hope that we can get that going here in this country because it's so rewarding to go out there in January and February and pick a whole salad when you have people come over and they ask where you got it. You point out the window when there's snow on the ground and they hardly believe you. It tastes better that time of year, too. You know, and I'm, I'm being a little bit unfair to us here in America. I'll tell you what I think a big part of it is, too. You don't just pick up your shotgun and go out squirrel hunting in, in, in October and your bow and go deer hunting in late October in France. And uh, a lot of people here that do grow a lot of their own food, we get in the fall, and that's, that's when we start going out and harvesting meat. And part of it is, well, I've got this other great stuff now, and part of it is, well, I have to spend the time doing that. But as you're saying, some of the techniques you're talking about, they don't take a lot of work, and you know, a salad's pretty good next to a, a venison steak. Right, and there's great nutrition in those greens, which we definitely don't get enough of in this country. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, I think that's real, you know, but I do think that's really what it is. That's what's created this tradition of shutting down the garden. Because I know, like I said, September, uh, the, the first Saturday before uh, Labor Day, every year was first day of dove season in Pennsylvania, and I'd be in a dove field. And we'd shoot doves all through September, and by October we're going to small game and archery season and, you know, bear season in November and deer season in December. And, um, you know, and that took a priority at that point because it was an opportunity to harvest meat. And, you know, I come from a, a place in Pennsylvania where, to this day, first day of deer season, school's closed. Uh, so I think that's maybe part of why we've kind of lost that winter gardening bug. Yep, it's that's the same way around here. We've got a lot of hunters, but there's no reason not to do this, too. It's so easy, and it doesn't take... It's, it's probably a quarter of the work to grow stuff during the winter as it is as opposed to the summer because you don't have any weeding, or you just go out there and pick your vegetables. So what are some of your plans beyond just winter gardening for your property? I mean, that's something people always love to hear about because, I mean, there's so many people here working toward that one-acre homestead, that three-acre homestead, that 10-acre homestead. Uh, what are some of your thoughts about where you're heading with this? I'm really interested in perennial stuff. Like I said, I'm lazy, so fruit trees and nut trees are going to be a huge priority on this property. I want to be able to – I'm going to have a path basically around the property – and I want to be able to eat my lunch while I take a 30-minute stroll. So we're going to do lots of swales and earthworks to get us through the dry months around here. Um, but I'm, I've got lots of fruit trees in the plans. Um, I'm going to keep my garden space to the south of the house open, and I plan to get a big uh, high tunnel as soon as I come across one and start growing stuff in that. But other than that, we're going to do some chickens and ducks and little birds, but we're probably not going to do any big animals over here. We just don't have the room. Yeah, I've had people suggest, you know, why don't you get a couple cattle or something. I'm like, I got three acres, and, I mean, it just doesn't, it doesn't fit the plan. 
And I I am really enjoying, this is our first time raising broiler chickens, and I'm looking at this going, I don't know that I'll do 50 every rotation, but I'll probably do two rotations of about 25 birds a year. Um, it's easy. It, it really isn't a lot of work. I know that there's people out there that do it for a living, you know, and they're raising a thousand birds a rotation, and they're cursing me saying it's not a lot of work. Well, it is if you're doing a thousand, and you've got, you know, you know, ten big, huge hundred bird tractors to move. Um, but with what we're doing, it's probably ten minutes of work a day, and that's a pretty big yield you get at the end of it. And the whole time, those birds are improving the land. So I think it's one of the uh, I'd say next to to having an egg flock, the easiest protein hit that you can do is probably raising chickens as broilers with maybe a close second or maybe even better really is geese because our geese were probably up to 12 pounds from, from you know day one old goslings to 12-pound birds, 90% on grass in about 12 weeks. Oh, that's great. That's a pound a week. It's, yeah. it's, it's insane the way they grow. You look at them now and go, I can't believe that that bird, even now, is only like four months old. It, it, it just it, you, you just look at it and go, there's no way. I mean, they're... they're they're big, beautiful, mature animals now, and uh, fortunately for them, they're the the foundational flock. Um, so their offspring will probably meet with a Christmas dinner, but uh, but they're they're here mainly as our our grazers because you know you were saying big animals just don't have the space, but I also don't like to mow a lot. And with them, I mean, you mow and get that grass down to about three inches for them. You put them in an area, and they'll just keep that, you know, they'll take it down to about an inch, and they'll quit. And they'll let it come back, and they'll do it again, and they'll do it again. And, man, they're poop machines. I mean, <laughs> they're eating, and it's coming out the other end at the same time. And that's, if somebody's eating dinner while they're listening, that might not sound like dinner conversation. But, boy, it's it's so valuable to the land. It's great fertilizer. I mean, you've got to have some animals on your land. That's It's a natural system, and that's the way it's supposed to be. Yeah, I, I, I think that. I don't care if you're a vegan. I would put animals in the system. Absolutely. Uh, you, you need to put. I think now when you put animals in a system, you got to put animals that put that go in the system as a function. So like we have dogs, and they do a little bit of a function in the system. But reality is they're not improving fertility, and neither of them are good dedicated livestock guardian dogs. So they're really pets. If you're going to put animals into a system like that, and you're not going to eat them, then you got to really think about it. I mean, I think. You know, just a couple rabbits kept in a hutch. If you're a vegan, you're not eating them, fine. Just the manure alone is just an awesome fertility yield. And, you know, you could keep a few geese. The thing is, they're going to breed. Um, and they're very prolific, but they only do it for about two months a year. And it, they're expensive. I think for eight goslings, I paid 113 bucks, And it was one place I could find them. And everybody else said, well, I can get them to you next year. So if nothing else, it can be a little cottage industry, I guess. Yep. Yeah, there's there's a lot to be said for breeding your own animals and selling those because there's a lot of old breeds out there that people are going to pay top dollar for that you just can't get anywhere else. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, I'm growing Toulouse, and what I've found with the Toulouse geese is the whole thing about domesticated geese don't fly does not apply. Um, they don't fly well, but they fly well enough if they get a good running start, you know, one or two of them will get over a good five-foot fence. 
Fortunately, none of them have flown outside of the property. They've flown across my cross fence into my main thing so they can eat my peas in my garden, um, which isn't that big a deal with them. And, I mean, the thing with geese and ducks is they're not very hard on land. You know, the chickens get in the garden, they dig holes and stuff like that. The geese just eat stuff, um, which can be bad. Ben lost, um, Ben Falk in New Hampshire lost, like, the majority of his winter squash this year because uh, he let his geese get out, and they mm-hmm. just ate everything. Um, so that can be a problem, but it, at least they don't tear things up. Yeah. In the same way with ducks, ducks are great at eating bugs, and they would prefer to eat bugs if they don't destroy your garden like chickens will. No, they won't, but they will start to eat. So Ben's had this experience. So he gets ducks, brings them in. Like the first season, they don't touch anything in the garden at all. Second season's a little drier, plus they've been there for a season, so they've really like just decimated the slugs. Mm-hmm. So now there's not quite as many slugs. So now, you know, a cucumber here, a lettuce head there, you know, they, they take a little bit. But they really were never really hard on it. But uh, he said the geese, man, and I, I could see it. So I had one yesterday that decided he wanted the top of a sorghum plant, and it's like a six-foot-tall sorghum plant. Uh-huh. So he just pushed it over like a bulldozer. <laughs> just walked into it with his chest and just kept walking. Like, so he was straddling it and just kept walking until he got to the top of it and started munching on it, started chasing back into his hole. They know uh, they but, want. yeah, I mean, I think that animals have got to be part of a system. Um, I can understand why people don't have them when they have a tenth acre in the suburbs. Yeah. But once you get into even like an acre homestead, because I could see doing broiler chickens on an acre. I used to struggle with it. Like, you know, could you really do 25, 50 birds on an acre? And and now that I'm doing it, I'm like, easy. Really easy, you know? Yeah, that's we're definitely going to look into that next year. I also want to look into growing my own feed because I don't like the idea of being tied to a feed supply store and constantly going back and forth to get feed. So that's one thing that I'm going to look into over the winter is, growing my own feed for the poultry. Let me give you our plan, what we're kind of playing around with. We're, think, we're, we're testing this this first time around with a little piece that's like an old goat pen, and it's probably a 10 by 15 area. Uh, but right now it's all, it's all sowed in black-eyed peas, which is a great chicken feed if you put it through some kind of a grinder. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some small sorghum coming up with it because I tried to get the chickens to clean it up for me. I put a bunch of scratch in there, and they didn't eat it all, and the sorghum's growing. Um, and what we're going to end up doing is uh, next year, since I've tested some sorghum varieties elsewhere, and I've got uh, decided on black, uh, not black, uh, white giant African sorghum as just being a great sorghum to grow. What we'll probably do next year is grow sorghum and, and cow pea together um, as a polyculture. So we got a legume, and we so basically kind of mimicking a three sisters garden. Maybe we'll even throw some butternuts in there or something, you know. Um, but then I'm getting ready to probably harvest just about all those peas here by mid-September, and uh, we'll we'll let the geese in there because they love the pea leaves. They just go nuts on them. So we'll let them take it down some. Then we'll throw a couple birds in there, a couple of the chickens in there after the geese are in there. And then chop and drop whatever's left, and we're going to plant red uh, winter Russian uh, beard, beardless wheat. Um, and it's a red wheat variety that does well in the South. It's it's like 200 years old at least. It's been grown in Texas for over a century. And we're going to plant wheat, and we're going to harvest the wheat. And so that actually becomes like maybe we won't grow all the birds' feed, but now we've got wheat, we've got sorghum, and we've got black-eyed pea. 
And that's some high-powered stuff for chickens. Right. Yeah, so, the more you can grow, I mean, you, it's going to be tough to grow everything, but the more that you can get your birds foraging and the more that you can grow for them easily, the better off you are. Yeah, and we're going to do kind of like a Fukuora-style mimicry. We don't have a rice paddy, um, but, you know, the, the winter grains followed by summer rice. We're going to do like winter grains followed by summer grains and legumes. So when we harvest the wheat, we'll just go out with sickets and take the heads off the wheat. And chickens don't need wheat threshed. Threshing wheat's a pain in the ass. But we can just store the sheaves of wheat and just give it to them on the stock. They'll, they'll sort it out from there. And we'll just drop, we'll go ahead and plant our, our, our summer crop when we harvest that. And then we'll just drop all the wheat straw to the ground. And water that in. in the, and with the spring rains, you'll just start building fertility and using that one little plot of land to supplement the feed, I think that gives you a lot more stability. Right. Yeah, we're going to have swales, and I plan to do things like amaranth and just throw it around kind of step holzer style, you know, and just see what comes up. And as long as the chickens know it's there and they're in that area, then I don't have to worry about feeding the chickens so much. Yeah, amaranth, we found a place called Sprouts. It's like a Whole Foods competitor. And it's like this big tub of amaranth down there was like five bucks. It was, you know, for food. Yeah. Well, I brought it. I bought it and figured, you know, I'll throw a handful into the chickens every day to supplement their feed. And I'm tossing it around. And we've got one growing out in the middle of the yard. I mean, no reason for it to pick that spot. It just did. And it's just from this, you know, amaranth that we you know, bought for like $3 a pound. Um, and it's huge. It's got this massive head on it. I've got a bunch of that growing, and that's another supplemental feed for for your birds. And that's another thing that you don't have to go through all the, the work you would if you were eating it yourself. Cut the head off the amaranth and throw it in with the chickens. They'll eat it. They'll, they know how to do that. Yep. <laughs> They've been doing it forever, essentially. So they, they fed themselves before we were around, so they can do it again. Absolutely, man. So anyway, um, one more thing before we go. Um, you've been taking, like I have, the Jet L Jeff Lawton online PDC. Um, how's that been? It's been great. Uh, I finished my final quiz, and I've just got to finish my design project, which I'm mostly done with. I'm going to make a little video and then probably come out with a PDF to turn in. But it's been a great class, and I'm glad I did it. I'm really impressed with the quality, given that it's uh, an online PDC. My concern was always, will there be enough interactivity? Having taken an on-site PDC, um, there's a lot of value to having other students around you. And I think the one place it would be a little bit weak is during the design component, like you're talking about that project, because you don't have somebody sitting right there that you can ask or, or whatever. But the other side of it is, I think he answered more questions that you, then you would ever get answered at an at a you know a hands-on show up and sit down PDC because he was able to do it by video and I'd say some of the lessons there were more more time put into answering student questions than the lessons themselves I was really blown away with the quality of it I've been asked if he's gonna uh, you know once this this rotation is over do it again and I hope the answer is yes because um, for a lot of people and, and you you may be among this group of people it's not that you can't afford a pdc you can't afford the time right i i there's no way i can make it to australia and take a pdc with jeff so this was the bet, next best option in my mind so it was totally worth it and the amount of questions he answered was incredible like i was 
I was really surprised that he did that many extra videos just answering questions from people in the class. Yeah, people were like, why is he limiting the number of people to take it? It's just online and downloadable videos. And when you realize, well, somebody has to judge the, the projects and make sure they, they check out. Uh, but when you add in the question level that he went to, you can see why. I mean, you can only have so many people and, and do that. Uh, the nice thing would be if you reopened it is a lot of those questions would be re-asked. Right. And, you know, basically see the prior video. Um, because I think people generally come to the same conclusions and the same, like, but what ifs. And, uh, you know, that always starts out with it depends, but. <laughs> yep, that's the permaculture answer. Yeah, yeah. Well, hey, man, I appreciate you being on air with us today, and I, I loved hearing about your, uh, your your new homestead. And uh, I, I think it's cool, kind of this new paradigm you've given me, that a lot of this stuff with winter gardening, it's really not growing. It's it's live storage. I think that's a very unique way to look at things. And, again, your uh, website, you want to tell everybody how to check out your blog? Uh, it's onesojourner.org, and you can also look up the same username on YouTube. And I've got – I videoed my first year that I messed with winter gardening stuff, and uh, it wasn't a complete success, but – it, it was a success, and we had plenty of salad that winter, so uh, everybody should check that out. I would also like to get some of the people that are on the forums to start documenting some of this stuff, when you're planning stuff and where your location is, so we can kind of get some simple database set up of when the best time to plant what is. Yeah, especially things like, well, I did it November 1st, and the pests were still out, and some guy says, well, I did it November 1st, and they weren't. Well, how far north was A versus B? I mean, that's that's some interesting stuff, so hopefully people will start doing that. Uh, it wouldn't hurt for maybe somebody to start a thread uh, about that or, you know, something like that it would be kind of a cool idea. Anyway, man, I'll make sure I put links to your uh, to your blog and your YouTube channel in the show notes for today's show. And, uh, again, thanks for being with us. Thanks, Jack. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spierka today along with Peter Hartman, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
future.